0: Welcome to a new episode of my RPG podcast. My guest today is Michael Gibson, who not only has a digital marketing and AR and comic book and musical background, is also a professional DM, and we get to talk about that, his intro into RPGs, as well as many other things on this episode. Enjoy. <music> to a new episode of My RPG Podcast. Today's guest is Michael Gibson. Michael, will you please introduce yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm Michael Gibson. Uh, uh, in addition to my 10 years as a digital marketing professional, I've been playing tabletop RPGs and board games for most of my life. Uh, I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons for about 20 years and have played in and run campaigns in 2nd through 5th edition, uh, I just recently made a career shift uh, from marketing consulting into being a professional dungeon master for hire uh, in this sort of weird digital age we've entered.
0: Yeah, Mike's brought a really cool background and a, a lot of the things I've picked up on just learning about him. He's somebody who I just got to know through the uh, internet online RPG space, but I, I think there's going to be a lot of great things coming from him. But Mike, before we jump into all the stuff you're doing currently Let's go back to the very
1: beginning of your RPG infancy. How did you get into RPGs? Um, probably through video games, in all honesty. Um, I, I think what got me into the genre was uh, Legend of Zelda on NES. Uh, and then I started discovering more and more games that sort of involved the building a character, uh, taking them on adventures over time, like these long sprawling stories. Um, and I think the game that that really cemented my love of RPGs as a genre um, was Final Fantasy Adventures for the Game Boy, um, which I think is actually part of the Secret of Mana series um, on on NES. Uh, but um, I just fell in love with it. I, I played that game. Uh, like from start to finish, probably about 150, 175 times through my life. Um, and I just couldn't get enough of sort of these, these character operas. Uh, and so I started finding some board games uh, that had sort of these, these longer form uh, games. Uh, you know, I, Risk, I think, was probably my gateway into the board game scene. Um, and then I discovered D and D and everything sort of just blew up from there. I discovered GURPS, I discovered D6, I discovered Palladium rifts and, uh, just haven't stopped ever since then.
0: What type of gamer were you when you started?
1: Uh, what type of gamer in what way?
0: Sure. Um, so a lot of people are drawn in if they come from like a computer or video game background, they kind of like the grind or they like the catching the loot and high-powered weapons and slaying monsters right or if you're maybe an old school D guy from the very very beginning your idea is very grade-based and very you go and you get the monsters you rob everybody you can and stuff like that Whereas some people in contrast are more about the story and care less about the mechanics so what sort of on that spectrum of course because nobody's one or the other were you
1: uh i a hundred percent am um I I have to see everything in a game, not because I necessarily need like the best loot or I need like all the achievements. I just I want to know that I've wrung every last bit of world building out of the games I play. Um, I do the same thing with like games as big as Borderlands and Assassin's Creed Origins. Um, I have hundreds of hours dumped into games like that because. I just I have to see everything and like if I hear a rumor about something or someone tells me about something cool you know it's one thing to watch a video of it uh it's another thing to like go and do it yourself uh and so I I still do that to this day it's like I I just want more of the story and more of the world and more of that color and personality uh and I'll pursue that at at pretty much any cost
0: yeah I'm definitely with you I'm a completionist when it comes to playing most games and I can't stop myself from trying to go to every exclamation mark or question mark on those maps. So I feel you in the Assassin's Creed and the big RPG worlds. Um, and also nobody can doubt uh, Mike, this is an audio podcast, but nobody can doubt Mike's love of Assassin's Creed as he has an Assassin's Creed flag behind him while we record. But I was going to ask Michael, your first character, can you remember your first character and tell me what
1: that was like, what they were like? Oh, um, yes. I think my very, very first character was in... um, My my first character in the Dungeons & Dragons universe was... uh, I got Baldur's Gate when I was way too young. Um, And I started that up, and that all runs in AD&D. So, like, all that uh, Thaco system and and all that jazz. Um, And I know my first character there... I always tried to build like a really sneaky roguelike character, uh, like they could pick the locks and, and find traps and stuff like that. Um, I never got very far uh, until I, I started learning a bit more about the, the underlying system. Um, but my first character in a pen and paper game um, was a two handed fighting monkey pirate buccaneer of some sort um i i think i built i think i built him using like ranger rules uh using the ranger class uh in uh dnd uh second edition um and that was i'm pretty sure that was my first character at a table
0: and were you always a creative because i know you became a creative later in life but that's something that was always there
1: Uh, I mean, honestly, yeah. Um, so I, I have like a, a 10 plus year career working in digital marketing and content. Um, I've written, uh, comic books. I've, uh, performed in, uh, bands that have toured the country. Um, I used to be really big in the wizard rock community, sort of like music based on Harry Potter. I was part of a band called Tonks and the Aurors, which had a huge following for a while. Um, Basically, any way I can explore creativity and niche interests, um, I'm I'm always down for it. So uh, I don't I don't think this is something I ever sort of just like discovered. I think this has just always been part of who I am. And I was lucky enough and privileged enough that um, my my mom really encouraged it. My grandparents were really supportive of it, and. Uh, We definitely had the funds as I was growing up to support some of the hobbies that have have turned into who I am today.
0: That's brilliant. And I think this is now like the third or fourth time where I found somebody with a music background. And I stand by this because my music background is, you know, I was in a band for a decade or so, released a couple albums and played shows and whatnot, is I think that, especially because we were heavy metal based, I think the heavy metal crowd and like the rock crowd are perfect for RPGs. Because right there, like, this big, over-the-top, embostic um, storytelling and epicness and all those dragons and f- f- falling foes and all that stuff. It was such a perfect segue that I feel like almost every person at a heavy metal show is probably playing d
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't help that like every description in Dungeons & Dragons looks like it would... It sounds like it would look amazing airbrushed on the side of a van, you know? like in a parking lot at like a metal show.
0: Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I've got my player's handbook within uh, eyesight now and I just look at that and I could totally like put some really cool font of a band underneath it and something like that. Like I can see it, you're, you're 100% right. So you're creative all the way through and you're getting into RPGs and I'm assuming you're starting as a player, right? Or did you DM first time out?
1: Uh, I started as a player. Um, I I think I... My DM was a neighbor who was in high school at the time. I think I was in uh, fourth or fifth grade.
0: So that's at a very young age. So that's really cool. Your creativity must have been off the charts. But when did you feel comfortable enough to start taking the role of the GM or the DM?
1: Uh, honestly, I, I don't think I ran a game as a, as a GM until my freshman year in high school. Um, there, there were long swaths of time in there where like, I wasn't playing at any tabletop, uh, in, in any tabletop games. Um, you know, cause there was just not enough friends who were into it or like time, you know, obviously it, <laughs> I can't, I can't drive over to my friend's house when I'm 12 years old, you know? Uh, so I, I was sort of limited on schedule and events and stuff like that. Uh, but once I got into high school, that's when I started being able to play regularly just because I was involved in so many extracurriculars. I was always in the building. Um, so, you know, I was, uh, you know, in, in film clubs and drama clubs and I played soccer and I played football and all these practices and rehearsals and events would start at, you know, four or five o'clock. And so I had between when school got out until when all of us had to go to our second job as a student at high school, basically. Uh, and, uh, we would just sort of build these little short form one or two hour sessions and play pretty much every day.
0: Man, I'm so envious of people who started early. I didn't get into it until my 20s, and I feel like marrying my love of creativity and music and fantasy and stuff like that when I was a youth would have been such a great experience to help you make friends and come out of your shell and not to just also look over the fact that it would have been super, super fun and more fun when you're a kid is, of course, what you want to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I, I think I was also sort of at, A little bit of an advantage because I I went to Catholic school, basically first grade through 12th grade. Um, And so if you are in that ecosystem, you're probably just going to school with the same people your entire life. So like, even the, you know, the really cool kids um, were friends with the really sort of nerdy dorky kids like me, because no matter what, like, we were all in the same sorts of organizations and clubs and stuff. So, like, we always knew enough about each other to still be friendly. Like, we still hated each other. Don't get me wrong. Kids in high school are awful. Um, but uh, we, we all, like, actually knew each other. Um, and I think that made it very easy to find more people to do things with and, and play games with.
0: So you, you've been playing for a, quite a long time, and I think something I ha- always keep bringing up to people, kind of the impetus of this podcast also, is the fact that we're now on a significantly large peak when it comes to the RPG community and the awareness of things like Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder, Open legged GURPS, etc., even tabletop top games like Gloomhaven, which simulate that experience. How have you reacted to this renaissance that we're living in right now?
1: Um, in all honesty, I've, I've sort of come full circle from being really gatekeepy about it to like being full throated flag waving, you know, gaming is for everyone. Um, when stuff first started picking up, um, I, probably in like 2006, like that's, that's probably when I, I, I think this tabletop and board game Renaissance kind of started um, I was really, really resistant to people who were saying things like, oh my God, like I'm so into board games because I just got this new one called like Settlers of Catan or like I found this thing called Ticket to Ride, you know. So sort of like or, as the years went on, um, it, my initial response of, oh my God, yeah, where have you been? I've been telling you about these things forever, um, turned into a little bit of resentment. You know, I, I think when Critical Role really started getting big is – Probably when I was at my worst about this, this sort of thing is because I was looking at this huge entertainment conglomerate starting to rise um, out of tabletop gaming and this like deep, deep nerd culture that just like ran deep in my veins. Um, And I was really jealous, like if, if getting back to the Catholic school days, my sin is always envy um and i i couldn't understand how people were making that a success and how they were making it grow and because i didn't understand it i got really envious of it and i sort of initially rejected it um thankfully i had a lot of friends at the time that were starting to to get into gaming as a result of things like critical role and sort of like broadcast streams and um, representation on tv uh, and so then I had a, like a, an influx of new players that, you know, coming out of my friends group saying, you know, Hey, can you run a one shot? You know, what is this D and thing about? Like, can you tell me about this? Help me build a character, help me write a, a module. Like I want to learn. Um, and as I started familiarizing them with a hobby that had been so important to me for so long, I started reconnecting with sort of that, that early joy that like exploration, you know, the the, watching somebody's face light up and I go, yes, you can build, you know, a, a fight club inspired gnomish barbarian, um, you know, and, and just watching, you know, this woman just go, Oh my God, that's going to be so much fun. Uh, that really warmed me back up to it. And then I started being able to see some of the, the broadening horizons in a new light, um, and just really come to celebrate everybody coming in. Um, I, I truly think that everyone should be playing these games. Uh, I think there's so much you can get out of it from a community standpoint and so much you can bring to it from a personal standpoint. Um, for some people it's even as effective as therapy, um, just like working through traumas, but it's also just this entertainment and this, you know, this familiarity and letting you play the hero and live out these fantasies, um, uh, there's not a single reason in my mind anybody shouldn't be playing tabletop games, like full stop period.
0: I totally agree with that sentiment, and I have to say, Michael, it takes a lot of uh, strength to say that you started off as somebody who was initially against and you know gatekeeping in that regard, because that's something that yes, I understand that uh, that's not the way you should be about it. That's not the way I, I think the RPG community should be about it. But at the same time, like I, I have to understand that. A great majority of these people who started, let's say, before the Renaissance that we have in the past, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, uh, they were chastised, discriminated, made fun of for being into this thing. So that sort of abuse kind of makes you very protective and defensive of what you have and the idea of something new and different coming in and maybe that people not being genuine or maybe people judging you now based off a standard of professional voice actor storytellers with high quality, you know, Twitch streams and you're you and some friends inside of a basement. I can see where that kind of reluctance or pushback might come from. So it's it takes a lot of courage to say you were that and then you kind of saw the error of your ways. Yeah, I, I think
1: I, I appreciate the compliment. Um I, I don't know that that I don't know that I'm as, as deserving of, of praise as all that, but what I what I do know is this is that when we have an opportunity to bring a hobby like this mainstream. I, un- I understand the concept of like, it was tough for me. So it has to be tough for you. You know, you, you see this even in like politics and, and, and things like that is, you know, I, I did my time. So you have to do yours. I paid my dues. So you should too. Um, and I think it, it takes, it takes a lot to be able to to open up to that um, and say, you know, no, you know, let's just make it easier for the people who come after. Um, and I don't know what in particular helped me cross that bridge. I, I, wish, I wish I knew, like, I, I could identify, like, an event that made me, you know, warm back up to sharing, you know, nerdy community spaces. Um, what I do know is that, you know, I... I was absolutely part of the worst of the worst of like online trolls, of you know, like in in comics, in Star Wars, in TTRPGs. Um, and then I wasn't, and I'm not sure when I grew out of that or when that started changing. Um, but I'm honestly, I'm just much happier with all of my fandoms and hobbies now than I was before. Um, so at a minimum, I'd recommend that people just sort of get over themselves because it's a lot more fun just sort of enjoying it um, than trying to like protect it. Uh, At least that's what I found.
0: And definitely. And for a a guy who started as a player for so long before you started jamming and DMing, if I remember correctly from when I heard you on another uh, program, I believe Trainer Jody's uh, Twitch show, check him out, Trainer Jody at YouTube and Twitch.com. You game three games weekly? Is that right? Five. Oh, my God. I, I guess I was so blown by that number that I, I mitigated it down to three, five games a week. How do you make that work, Michael?
1: Uh, you know, in, in all honesty, uh, we just so I, I've started I started doing this at this scale very recently, like after all the shelter in place and shutdowns and stuff went into effect. Um but I've always, always, always wanted to add more to my tabletop experiences. Like, and I'm, I'm always coming up with new stories. Um, I I actually do a, a handful of challenges a week called Story Breaks, um, where like I write a new, uh, actually inspired by the podcast of the same name by Freddie Wong um, uh, at, and the team over at Rocket Jump, um, where I, I write like a feature length, idea for a a film or a tv series or a board game or a tabletop game every week um in an hour um and i just find like the worlds and ideas and characters and places just flow so effortlessly through my head like i can picture it i can put myself in that world i can live in there i can discover new things about it like and just completely improv it so I think the only reason I'm able to do it is because I can just take my whole mind and put it into those worlds as opposed to trying to like focus on, okay, for this campaign, I need to remember these names. And for that campaign, I need to remember these places. And for campaign C, I need to remember like these quests. um, When like, I'm basically just putting myself game to game to game to game and just jumping between those worlds in my head. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm either too high or not high enough to make an apt description like that. But that's about as I, it's about as clear as I can make it.
0: No, I mean, I, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. But it's still a impressive way to go about it. I mean, we all know how the difficulty of just the time management. But I can't imagine the different world managements and characters and story arcs all at once. I mean, as a guy who does three two-weekly and one that's like bi-weekly now... I find myself having hard times and they're all in the same world, mind you, but just, I find myself having hard times to be like, wait, this game do that? Or did the other game do that? Uh, Did they meet this guy already? Oh man, I can't. I think I just repeated myself. Oh
1: crap. Yeah. I, so I think the thing that helps me is I finally got to a point after I realized I was building a, like a world bible for every single world I was creating and like languages and countries and like demographics and stuff like that and that was a lot of fun like putting together these almanacs for these different planets and nations and things um it was it was a lot of fun to sort of stretch my creative legs that way but I found that once I started letting go of knowing everything about the universe before my players even knew about it um and I just started discovering it with them um, it, it became a lot easier, you know, when, when they ask things like, you know, oh, between this Island and this Island, you know, in, in a Sky Pirates game, for instance, um, they say, is there anything between these two islands? Like we could really refuel all of a sudden I think about it and I go, yeah, you know what, there's this giant like refueling station called the recurrent and it's run by this like loose conglomeration of like halflings and half orcs who have aligned themselves. And like, I start discovering this place with them. It didn't exist until they asked the question, but now I get to paint that picture with them. Um, and that's way, way easier and way better for me than you know looking at a map and going, no, between those islands, there's nothing because I did not have that on the map before you asked. Um, and I think being more fluid has really helped me.
0: But it still takes a great bit of structure. And I have to ask if you had the structure always or is this something that as you got older because of your job and doing anything from marketing to your work in the AR of AR space, is that something that you always had or is that something you developed and then and just kind of get to use in your RPG and world building and creating and stuff like that?
1: I, I think I learned how to hone it and direct it. You know, I think I've always had this sort of like bouncy, manic, like, Uh, imaginative streak. You know, I've I've always been called daydreamer. I've always been called, you know, uh, uh, I was always a student with really good potential. You know, I don't know if you got that when you were a kid from teachers. It's just like, he's got such potential.
0: I think I got for the longest time, like he's wise beyond his years. And and my brother just was potential because I was the one who was like, the good kid who got good grades for, you know, accelerated placement classes, blah, blah, blah. Whereas my brother was always the one that they're like, you know, he's got so much potential if he applies himself. However, uh, I find that was kind of bad because I did rely on that for a while and then I got a little bit lazy and that's where I had my mid high school crisis and I didn't end with, you know, the high grade point average and all that stuff. So that was my fault.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've we've all had those rises and falls. You know, any anyone who was ever in a gifted program, I think, like I think all of us are legally required to have like antidepressants now. Um, <laughs> hooray, society! Um, but no, I I think it was just, I I learned how to focus. I I learned how to take my creativity and put a goal behind it. You know, it, as I started the GMing thing you know, the thing that was really important for me was, okay, what do I want to do with this? Okay, I want to have three games going by the end of this week, because that'll show me that there really is a demand for it. And so I focused on setting up those three games, and I was able to get that going. And I was like, okay, cool. So now let me figure out how many games I think I can run in total, I think I could do one a day. um, But I want to leave myself one day off a week. So I start ramping up um, my goal now is six games a week. Right now, I still only have five, so my next goal is to add another game. After that, it's okay. Now I want to add uh, some more of my content development things and my community get make my community tea, hmm, and my community advocacy. Uh, and so I want to find podcasts to go on that reflect a little bit of what I used to do in marketing, you know, going on shows, going on road tours, going to events, being on podcasts. So I started working with Jody, and now I'm working with you, and I have another podcast that I'm going to be talking to next week. Um, And so it's about like setting these little micro goals and just sprinting to them, um, and that helps focus and drive that creativity forward as opposed to just picturing, okay, what does my five-year plan look like? Then I spend a ton of time imagining, oh, how great life is going to be in five years, and then... I have to start figuring out how to get there. And I go, oh, that's boring. And then I I lose steam. Um, so I, I've definitely had to learn how to manage my own mind as I've gotten older. And that's that's been really, really helpful.
0: But you have that great mentality. I mean, that's the uh, long-distance cross-country runner mentality, right? Where you're not thinking about the finish line you know, 20 kilometers away. You're thinking about that tree or that post or whatever the next small thing is. And you take... That minor victory, minor victory, minor victory, which ultimately adds up to the greater um, success. So you're doing so much already. Obviously, we have with the at the time we're living in right now, time for some is is, is 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 plentiful. So you can have many games going. But you're intending to, and you claim to be a professional DM. So let's talk about that transition to turning this from a hobby that you really, really enjoy to something that's a professional.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been able to take a lot of my skills as a digital marketer and start applying them to this area. So, for instance, you know, I know the way most people play remote games is with uh, online platforms like Gold 20 and things like that. However, after sort of looking at what the costs would be to be able to build everything I wanted to, to be able to, uh, you know, upload all of the worlds I want to work in and rule sets and stuff it was going to start getting prohibitively expensive to, to like su- subscribe to some of the professional packages and things like that. So I started looking at the technology I had at my fingertips uh, now. And so as a designer, I have the full Adobe suite. Um, so I started seeing you know, what I could use very easily to modify maps. And so like, I started doing some layouts in Photoshop and grid work in Photoshop. Um, and then as my players started needing mapped combat, we moved over to Adobe Illustrator because I can easily create stroke weights around letters or characters to denote things like, you know, paralysis, sleep, charm, things like that. I can easily denote this is an uh, this is a NPC or this is a player character depending on the outlines and colors. Um, and so I was able to just sort of shift my current technology stack to serving uh, tabletop gaming. And that's been fairly seamless. I think the only thing I haven't been able to figure out so far is like how to do music along with my games. Um, but I'm planning on having that figured out by the end of the week using a couple different uh, uh, G Suite tools um, that Google has for Google Meetings. So uh, with any luck, I should have sort of the full uh, gamut of what most people consider a, a professional quality Uh, like live stream or tabletop game um, just available. And then I customize it to the groups I run with. Um, I have uh, all five of the games I'm running right now are paid. Uh, They run anywhere from $5 per player per game to $20 per player per game. Um, And uh, my tables usually have between four and six players of them. So it's been growing very rapidly. uh, And I definitely have to, to, give a lot of credit to my time working in digital marketing um, because I already had the tools to make some of this happen very easily. Uh, that's, That's definitely smoothed things out for me.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to talk. Obviously my economics degree has to show every episode at least once. I kind of want to talk about the economics and the, the nitty gritty of this. And you don't have to go into full detail, but where does one come to when it comes to figuring out what's a good price point and how, how to value oneself? And like, is it based off of how much hours of prep or how long the game is and stuff like that? Where do you come from that perspective? And I know you have a business background as well. So maybe you've already got half of this methodology down, but I just wanted to know how you approach that.
1: Sure. Uh, so I I built my career in marketing working as a consultant for artists in the comic industry. Um, I I worked with art uh, with artists like uh, Tommy Castillo, Rick DeShane, Guzo. Guzzo. Um, I did uh, a little bit of work with uh, artists like Joe Tanaglia, like like people who who did fairly well in the industry. Um, and what I learned working with them was the best way to set your rate is essentially to establish. All right, look. I have to be responsible for my own budgeting and my own pay. How much do I want to be earning a year? How much do I think is a reasonable amount to be earning a year? So like, let's just, for example, say, um, you know, I want to be making $50,000 a year. Um, Break that up by 40 hour work weeks. Um, Give yourself two weeks vacation. So you divide uh, 50,000 by 50 weeks because you're taking two weeks off out of 52 weeks in a year. Um, then you subdivide that by 40 hours a week and that tells you how much per hour you need to be making to get to $50,000 for your annual income for the year. Um, After that it just becomes sort of establishing okay um, what does that 40 hours a week look like? What's planning? What's writing? What's actually running a session? Um, And then understanding where the revenue comes in. So can I sell modules? Can I um, be a paid guest on things? Uh, how many players at a promo rate of $5 per player per game gets me to that 40 hour work week? Um, and you just run through a couple of those numbers, and eventually it comes out to, you know, X amount per player per game. Uh, I think for me, the, the midline goal um, to be able just to uh, be making uh, just general. Uh, living expenses right now um, is like $15 per player per game is essentially what it comes down to. Um, and that's like a three or four hour session once a week. Um, and that's, that's where I've sort of modeled all of the pricing uh, is, is around that. Um, obviously, if you go to my website, uh, which is uh, yesthatmgibson.com and you look at the pricing there, um, we have the pricing set there at $25 per player per session. Um, because I want to be able to work with people on pricing, but I also want to be able to use any, uh, additional revenue to improve technology stack, to be able to do, uh, like, uh, charity campaigns or donation campaigns, things like that as we move forward. Um, but yeah, it's just know how much you want to make at the end of the day and structure your pricing around that. Um, and understand that it's going to take a little while.
0: For the audience, all links will also be put in the description of the Spotify or iTunes or whatever method you're listening to because I do want you to be able to look this up because he has mentioned it as well. But yeah, Mike, you came from a brilliant background. You did your homework. You had an idea of what you're getting into. And I, I do wish you all the luck with all this. What are some things, I mean, outside of obviously the immediate, which is you being a professional DM and working in that, what are some things that have you excited or that you're rallying around currently in the RPG sphere?
1: Um, I mean, my, my big thing is always about accessibility. I, have I've been focused on that in my marketing work and my content development work there for most of my career. Um, you know, I, I focus on using maps, uh, and color guides and stuff like that, that are colorblind friendly. Um, I work with, uh, friends and professional, uh, friends who both have uh, neurodivergence, uh, you know, ADD, ADHD, uh, you know, autism spectrum, uh, both as professionals um, and just as, as people giving me feedback um, to learn how to create character sheets or reference sheets, stat blocks um, that are easier for them to process. You know, uh, one of my, my biggest projects right now is I'm working with my partner um, who has uh, mild dysnomia. I've been working with her to build a character sheet um, that's easier for her to be able to read quickly. You know, when looking down skill checks and things like that, how can we organize and what fonts can we use? What structures and layouts can we use? That makes it easier for her to process those numbers so she can spend less time trying to translate what she's seeing and more time enjoying the game. Um, uh, A big part of that is, you know, understanding. That there are some inherent issues in the larger games uh, like Dungeons and Dragons um, or Pathfinder, um, you know, helping people understand like inherent bias. You know, the, the big thing in the last couple of weeks has been the orc discourse on, on Twitter um, in the RPG world and, and just sort of being willing to listen to those conversations with an open mind, helping facilitate those conversations where I can. Um, and then also, um, to a a lesser extent, this is more focused in my tech work in AR and mobile gaming. Um, but working with people with physical disability as well to make the games more accessible, um, things like, you know, uh, tokens that can be grasped with prosthetics, um, or minifigs that are, uh, made of more forgiving materials, um, for use with prosthetics or dropping, you know, if people have, uh, Delicate control issues, and you're dropping figures a lot. Obviously, some of those acrylics and three D prints won't hold up. So, what materials can we explore? Um, and so, there's there's this whole world of accessibility advocacy that I think doesn't get enough representation. Um, mostly just because so many of us, and, and I consider myself a, a part of this community um, because I, I am, in fact, colorblind. Uh, even as a designer, uh, I, I'm, I I have uh, trianotopia. So I'm blue, yellow, colorblind. Um, And uh, I also have some physical disabilities as well as a result of spinal surgery a few years ago. Um, So this is something that started as something that I was passionate about to bring my privilege to to help magnify voices and has since become a very real part of my life where I can bring my personal experiences to bear as well. Um, So gaming is for everybody. um, And my goal is to help make that a reality. And
0: and I don't want to say it's like fortuitous, obviously, because the circumstances are now very unfortunate. But I guess this sort of situation in the world we're living we're in right now brings to forefront the importance of being able to have a game or a hobby that's accessible to all, regardless of maybe they're not able to physically interact or they have difficulties physically interacting with dice or sheets or minis or whatever it is. And your background then married with this. I mean, it's, it's a perfect time, obviously, for you to, to flex that, which you've learned and accomplished through the years.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I certainly appreciate that. I, I agree. Um, it's, it's a surprisingly weird space to exist in. Um, I, I will say there's so, so very, very, very high level. There's sort of these two schools of thought in terms of dealing with disability advocacy. There's systemic advocacy. Um, Or institutional advocacy, which is where you focus on like the industry um, and their attention to accessibility and how they're uh, addressing it or not addressing it um, creates the environment. So, for instance, you know, does Wizards of the Coast not have not having a dysnomia friendly version of their book prevent people with dysnomia from playing the game? Um, That's institutional advocacy. Um, And so, like, somebody who is an institutional advocate would say, like, our goal is to get Wizards of the Coast to put in the time and resources and development and build that for the whole audience because that's their responsibility as the owners of this property. Um, And then there's personal advocacy, uh, which would be more the side of, okay, uh, I can't play this game as written. I can't play this game as published. What can I do to create a stopgap for other people like me? To be able to have more access to it um and and i won't i honestly there is like it's a war between those two schools of thoughts in most places on the internet like there's a lot of people who are just like no it's you it's your responsibility you have to do it yourself and then there's a lot of people who are basically saying no it should be the companies with the resources it should be the people with the resources and energy um and i think both sides make a lot of really good points um i try to do both because i happen to be privileged enough Um, to have the finances to be able to um, buy from creators who are doing the personal advocacy. And I also have the energy uh, and the experience in corporate communications to translate some of those personal advocacy issues into communications that I can send to the industry side as well. Because I can write a full description of why this character sheet that I've built help serve people with dysnomia and dyslexia, whereas somebody with dysnomia or dyslexia who's building something for themselves might not be able to communicate why it works for them. Um, And so I sort of like to live in the middle of that and sort of help bridge that gap and serve as a translator.
0: Yeah, and I think the world is, or at least our RPG community, has a shortage of uh, vocal... uh, voices or maybe that they, they're, they're not a shortage of them, but maybe they just need more marketing and more, um, PR. Cause I mean, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of like, you know, able gamers who are promoting, you know, a more opening inclusive and more considerate place. And I'm maybe Jennifer Kretschmer is probably the biggest one I can think of. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you, do, do you know her by chance, Michael?
1: Uh, I do. I do. Um, I, I would also say heroes without limits is a really, really great one. Um, so, uh, that's, uh, I, I don't remember her name, but I know she goes by the dislocating GM, um, on Twitter. Um, uh, the, the whole team behind Heroes Without Limits, which is, at uh, H Without Limits on Twitter, um, they're a TTRPG community that specifically promotes representation of disabled and chronically ill and neurodiverse, neurodiverse people. Um, and they're specifically on the TTRPG side, where Able Gamers is much more focused at, um, on video games and electronic entertainment. Uh, and in fact, we had Steve Spawn. Uh, so, my augmented reality company Quest, uh, we had Steve Spawn on a 24 hour live stream uh, to talk about um, examining how to make uh, location based augmented reality. Um, more disability friendly. Um, So they do great work on the uh, digital entertainment side, but I would say Heroes Without Limits is probably the group I would direct people to on the the TTRPG side.
0: There is a lot of heavy stuff that we're talking about and I have no problem with it whatsoever, but do you mind if I switch over to a little bit something more uh, lighter? So, I can't stop myself from leaning towards a particular class or a particular type of character, maybe because of my music and, you know, character and world building background. But I find Bards probably be the most fun character to play. The idea of someone who does magic or creates Marvel's wondrous, based off of purely their artistic, you know, abilities and intent. And that's kind of my thing, regardless of system. I love the idea of somebody who either through amazing speech or song or playing of, you know, a a space guitar can convince the world to come together or to destroy a giant monster. Uh, Is there a character type that you find yourself in love with or leaning towards when you get a chance to play? And what's the last time you had a chance to play? Because I'm a guy who GMs almost all the time and I rarely get a chance to play. So it's really refreshing
1: when I do. Um okay so there's a couple questions in there um yes, and yes. I'm super excited to answer all of them um, the the type of character I usually am attracted to playing most is more about like an archetype than like an actual class um I am always super super into like the gunslinger like type character you know, no matter how it was no name, Sergio Leone stuff. Yeah. Like that kind of thing, you know, sort of like the, the wander into town, like all of a sudden I'm the sheriff kind of thing. Um, you know, sort of the the mysterious stranger in the fallout series is probably like a really great example. That's the kind of character I love to play. Um, or, um, you know, Cable from uh, Cable and the X-Men. Um, I, I would consider him sort of that like lone gunslinger kind of guy with like a close group of friends. Um, I love playing those sorts of characters, um, and I love putting them in a place where, like, the reason they're drawn into doing these things is because they just want to make the world a better place for whatever exists in their backstory that drives them, and like, they they want to pr- they want to protect, um, and the only way they know how to do that is like with these tools of destruction. I always feel like that's a really interesting dichotomy of somebody who like doesn't love what they're doing. Um, but does it because like they don't know how else to improve the world around them or save people. Um, and so like that, that archetype is is where I love to set my characters. Um, I actually do get to play from time to time. Um, a friend of mine uh, back in Washington, DC. I live in the Chicago area now. Um, uh, she runs uh, a digital game um, that I, I played at in in real life. Uh, for a while as well, where I played essentially a psychotic necromancer, Gnomish Elton John, um, <laughs> named Will <Glittergold>. um, <laughs> and Glittergold, uh, and he's just this like his his whole thing is is he he also fits into that archetype because like he's a necromancer because he loves life and and so like all he wants to do is find a way to let people live and party and have a good time as long as possible, um, and so I get to play that character every now and then. Um, and like, he's starting to get to be like this really awesome battle caster who has a, a big dire woolly rhino mount that he has a big saddle on. And um, it's just it's it's so much fun to play him because he's about as chaotic as chaotic characters get. But like, it's always chaotic with a focus. It's like always meant to entertain. It's always meant to improve. It's always meant to like have fun, as opposed to just like, undirected chaos. Um, and I, I've really loved playing him over the last two years.
0: Yeah. I think organized chaos is a, it's, it's a fine line to play. I I think a lot of people end up going too far to the chaotic size without any focus, but there's definitely a brilliance to playing those types of characters. And I, I love that idea as well. I've done the hedonistic, my, my, my explanation was like, uh, well how would I explain him to? I think it was the Iggy Pop. I I think I created a character that I was like it's just like an Iggy Pop uh total like crazy bad relationships with horrible girlfriends and wants to keep the party going self-destructive kind of hedonist thing one time where i, I did that with a bard and what was funny is the rest of the players decided it was a short you know two uh two shot the rest of the players decided to play support roles of my touring band right so you know i think you had like the dwargar spellcaster illusionist was like the tech guy so i was coming up to him like all right when we get up to the show i want to come out and i'm going to be 7,000 feet tall and over the crowd. And he's like, ah oh, shit. All right, boss, we'll figure it out. Uh, I, I think I got a thing that works like, and all the other people were trying to, you know, support me, you know, backup singers, drummers, et cetera, et cetera. So I was super happy with that two shot. Cause everybody decided to pretty much make me that focal character. And it's really, really fun.
1: That, that sounds fantastic. Um, you'll, you'll actually appreciate this other character I ran then. Um, because first of all, I love Detroit Jesus. Uh, Iggy pop is one of my favorites. Um, nice. he's, he's an underrated tour de force in entertainment.
0: I think his live show stuff, even if you see him on YouTube and stuff like that, I mean, I, I, God, I've never had a chance to be there in person, but like he's a thousand years old, but he rocks harder than a guy who's
1: 22. Oh yeah. Like his, his, he's a robot. Uh, you cannot convince me that man is not a robot. Um, cause he just doesn't quit. Um, But I I ran uh, a character for a while that was a bard monk multi-class who I based on, Henry Rollins. Um, Nice. Another good pull. I love it. And his his instrument was punching people. (laughs) So, like, the way he would give inspiration was, like, flurry of blows and, like, clocking out a drum beat on someone's face. Um, And, like, that was, like, the Henry Rollins, you know, bard, angry punk build. It was... That was a that was a crazy crazy game. I think that was like a Shadow Run game. I think
0: it was either yeah, Shadow was Run really... or
1: Cyberpunk. I can't remember. They sort of flow together from time to time.
0: Yeah, I think there's so much wells you can draw from from music. Um, so many times, lyrics or bands or you know, it's clever titles I've taken from songs and from things. And I don't know how many times my players catch them or not. I usually try to pick obscure bands and and titles so they don't get it, but god it's just an endless well of inspiration
1: yeah i i love incorporating music into into my games uh, one of one of my favorite characters uh as a player um was a a, a game uh, it was a Rifts polydium game um and if you think like the the amount of time i've run games is impressive uh the guy who used to run a table i played at uh by the name of rob setlowski the guy's a creative genius um, uh, and I've, I've taken a lot of inspiration to how I managed the tables from him um, because he ran a game in this weird Marvel Comics Rifts World mashup for 15 years every week. Um, and like some of the players at the table played since day one. Um, and I got to join this game when I relocated to the area uh, after undergrad. Um And I got to play this character that was the non-canonical child of uh, Dazzler and Banshee. And he was just like this 80s-tastic, like, Aerosmith-esque guitar player, sonic boom generator. Um, And it was just really cool because I think that helped solidify sort of where I am as a DM now because... I would bring these character ideas to Rob and he would be like, yeah, let's figure out how to make the mechanics work around it. And we would spend the time and build the character together and put the sheet together. And like, I felt very invited to play in this world as opposed to being told, okay, you could only use these books and these classes are off limits. And like, you're going to build your character like this and don't try to sneak anything in. Uh, instead it was like very freeform and very welcoming. Um, and that I, I think was like really huge for me as a player. Um, and and I think really a good way to run a table, period.
0: And I think that's a musician in you, too. I mean, most of the time when I find people who are going to be an easy transfer, music is uh, – uh, sorry, an easy convert to RPGs. Music is obviously a great place to start and theater is another one. And I always find – and a lot of the people I talk to now who have taken this beyond just a hobby and want to do more, there's typically an improv background where you get your yes and – and or a music background where you're used to having three, four, five, six other members who are bouncing ideas off of you and you're not straight up just rejecting and going, no, like, hmm, like, yeah, that kind of works. Or like that could be a bridge or maybe if we just like up that, you know, to this key that would work with this other part. So I think it's interesting that you saw that as well when you keep bringing these, these characters and the GMs you liked and you appreciated, recognize that and they worked with you.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to say to that, to, to support that. I mean, my, my musical background, I, I was in a uh, jazz, a jazz quartet for a number of years, like doing a lot of improv blues. Um, you know, when I was in theater, uh, I really liked to focus on sort of like non-traditional shows. My partner is a costume designer um, and I've always like really, really loved theater and film and, and serialized storytelling. Um, I think if, you're willing to just find things that fit, you know, the, the sort of person who's really good at D I D I think is similar to the sort of DJ that can sample a lot of different things seamlessly and create like a really solid mashup that makes everybody stop and go, Oh my God, that sounds so good. You know, producers, um, out there that can do that I, I think are really rare. Um, but I think it's, it's very similar. It's just, you don't have to know how everything fits together. You just need to know sort of like what families everything exists in. And then you can very easily reach out to different touch points in your storytelling. You know, you can have a little Star Wars and a little bit of Marvel and a little bit of, you know, uh, hardcore heavy metal. And you can have a little bit of like, you know, yuppie influencer all in the same game. If you understand like how you're going to link those story beats together. Um, I think that's, that's a lot of fun to play in.
0: It will definitely keep it from getting boring. And and I think you mentioned that guy who had a 15 year game. And I'm, I, God, I wish I, I, I can get to that point where I can say I'm playing a game with, the, you know, hopefully the same people uh, for 15 years. But my always fear when people would tell me about these stories that were, you know, a decade plus was like, well, what happens when you run out of ideas? And the thing they keep telling me is like, you don't really. Things just get weirder and weirder, but somehow it just keeps feeling fresh. Yeah, uh,
1: I I think that's that's really true. It, it, there's no end to these worlds. Like as long as you're treating these places and characters as living, breathing people and places, um, there's always something else. There's always something that comes after. You know, it, it's sort of what, what everybody says about our current situations now, like politically and socially and, and situationally, is like, you know, as as long as tomorrow shows up, like these stories keep going, and like there's always a way for things to get better they could also get worse before them, but like eventually everything's going to be okay. Um, and I, I think it's, it's just being willing to understand that those worlds don't have an end point because a specific story arc does. Um, and you can keep exploring as long as your players are having fun with it.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think those stories and whether in, in you know our made up worlds or in the real world are those things that will remain and will never really end and be it through you know Joseph Campbell talks about you know the the kind of structure of the hero's journey and seeing that through even gilgamesh to nowadays or you know music that transcends folk songs or like ballads that transcend generations and centuries and decades i think the same thing can be said of like the stories we tell in our games and a positive thing for that for me Is this ability to learn and explore yourself in a a safe place? And you know, I've always said, and I'm not saying it's ever an excuse—not excuse, or sorry—an alternative for um, therapy, but it can be therapeutic. It can be uh, stress relieving. It can be, uh, you know, self care to play in RPGs and to role play in in general. So, would you would you agree, Michael? And what are some things that you found? You've taken away or have bettered you through being an RPG sphere?
1: well, first of all, I absolutely agree um, i i think I, I have seen people and and I have helped people use TTRPGs as a way to sort of manage trauma um, you know I, I think the, the best example I can think of that is is I had a, a friend who was part of a campaign um, in which she was able to like finally able to sort of confront a fictional version of her abuser um and like that was really helpful for her but she was encouraged to do that by a therapist who was aware of her trauma knew sort of what her familiarity and safety in in our table was um and and they really discussed whether or not to do that sort of thing so like i don't think I, I, I want to be careful here because, like, the last thing I want any, any aspiring GMs or any current GMs to do is all of a sudden go, oh, okay, well, I know my friend, you know, has, like, a fear of, uh, like, a really crippling fear of spiders, and so I'm going to put spiders everywhere in my game to help them through it. Um, don't <laughs> you, you don't really know what you're doing. It's not your job to establish uh, how to make it therapeutic. Let your players guide that and have a conversation with you. Um, But if they do, um, make sure that they know that they're appreciated and that anything they share with you um, will be shared will be shared in confidence um, and that uh, you're going to do your best to make sure that that they feel comfortable. Um, I think as long as everybody understands what's happening and everybody understands what the boundaries are, it can be incredibly helpful.
0: Absolutely. And we've had a fantastic chat. Michael, if people want to find you, support you on the internet and elsewhere,
1: where should they go? Uh, so the best place to find me uh, just day to day is on Twitter, where you can find me at yes that m gibson as in yes that michael gibson over there uh, and then you can also find my website uh yes that m. uh where you can find my marketing portfolio if you have a project you need some support on uh and you can find uh, a summary of my professional ttrpg services uh and learn a little bit more about what i do uh, on in the gaming area uh so yeah anybody has any questions always feel free to reach out um i love chatting with people about new projects
0: And if you enjoyed this and you want to follow up with me, my personal Twitter is Classy underscore Don. That's D-O-N. You can find me on Instagram and most places through that. This is the My RPG Podcast, which you can find on PodBeans, iTunes, Spotify, and all other places podcasts are found. If you have any questions, requests, or want to get on the show, the gmail is my rpg podcast at gmail.com. also hopefully when they come back you can find me at major conventions like san diego comic con dragon con etc etc otherwise thank you for listening and i'll see you at the table